shock, the terror of Werewolf by Night. Tonight, it is every hunter for themselves. Good luck. I'll be rotting for you. But one of you is a monster masquerading as one of our own. I can't wait to find out what breed of evil you are. promised that we would do deliverance, but uh, some scheduling snafus happened, as they are wont to do with our podcast. So it's just me in Lord Movie Studios here in the Great North, and barring any scheduling snafus, we'll have deliverance for you next week. This week, I intended to have a mini-episode, but my writing of the script got kind of long, so it's going to be just a full episode for your edification and interest in this mini-sode become epic-sode. There will be three segments of thrills, chills, and... Spills? No. As Marvel just dropped its very first Halloween special, Werewolf by Night, on Disney+, Plus, I thought I would give you guys a little primer on how we came to this point. What's the origin of Werewolf by Night? And kind of give you a little background uh, on the character. After that, I'll give you my impressions of the first episode of Paper Girls, Amazon's new sci-fi thriller series. And then I'll offer a response to some facile, self-absorbed, and thoroughly wrong-headed thing that Alan Moore has recently said about superhero movies. Don't worry, I won't make a habit of responding to every dumb edgelord thing Moore says. That would be a sad project of a lifetime's work. Maybe by now you've seen the trailer, or even watched the latest Marvel show, Werewolf by Night, on Disney+. Maybe you are only hearing about Werewolf by Night just now on this very show. Maybe you were a little surprised to see Marvel is dabbling in horror. Well, whatever you're thinking, whatever your questions, I'm here to hopefully answer them. To help. That's my, that's my purpose here. First off, Marvel and the macabre go way back, almost to the beginning of the, the company. 
Certainly Marvel's predecessor company, Timely Comics, had horror comics. Well, I think it's actually Atlas Comics. Uh, in its early days, were offered a lot of anthology series that featured uh, one, two, and sometimes three short stories per issue. These anthology books functioned, I think, as sort of a market research. The creators could try out new characters, settings, etc., and since fan response then, as now, was so reliable, Marvel would find characters that fans wanted more of, allowing Marvel's creative team to focus on those characters, create books with those characters that fans really liked. Of course, in Marvel's early days, uh, fan response was provided by post, snail mail, letters. These days it's done by email, Twitter, or any number of other social media outlets for fans to interact with creators. I think these early anthology books also functioned as a way for Marvel to test and train new talent, so they're really useful books for a lot of different reasons. Many, if not most, of Marvel's major players of today that we read today, Captain America, Thor, emerged in these anthology short story collections. These titles were Journey into Mystery, this introduced Thor, Tales of Suspense, which introduced Iron Man in issue 39, Strange Tales, which introduced, perhaps unsurprisingly, Doctor Strange. You can kind of see by all of these little titles that there is a hint of the macabre, of strangeness. There will be some spooky stuff in these comics. Not always spooky stuff, but sometimes spooky stuff. There would be monsters. So you get an idea of the freedom that Marvel had to tell a wide variety of stories with these anthology pieces. That said, it wasn't really until the 1970s that Marvel started telling classic horror tales involving classic horror villains and monsters. As the 60s edged into the much edgier 70s, Marvel did not have vampires, werewolves, uh, zombies, demons, dark magic. There was no voodoo in Marvel prior to 1970. Why? For a long time, Tomic... <laughs> For a long time, comics creation labored under the somewhat puritanical curation of the Comics Code Authority, which was sort of the MPAA rating system of comics. Discussing its origin would probably take us too far afield, but let's suffice it to say, parents, clergy, and politicians had child brain-rotting boogeymen aplenty long before they were worried about the internet, video games, and movies. Politicians distressed parent, uh, and distressed parents worked out the comics code with comic publishers, and nipples, among other things, disappeared from bare-chested men well into the 1980s. But according to Roy Thomas in an essay published at the end of Giant-Sized Creatures, which starred Werewolf by Night and featured the first appearance of Tigra, who would later go on to become a magic-based Avenger, publishers managed to convince the Comics Code Authority that while their stance on the male nipple, and nipples generally, was still reasonable, their stance on vampires, werewolves, demons, voodoos, zombies, dark magic, the whole combined Universal Hammer Films library basically was not. Publishers, according to Thomas, successfully argued that readers were unlikely to be scandalized or scared by these kinds of creatures. Thomas pointed out in his essay how silly this stance was on ancient monsters of legend in the face of TV news showing children burned by napalm or the daily threat of nuclear annihilation, which uh, actually was pretty scary. And now seems to hang over our head a little bit more acutely, thanks to a unnamed Russian autocrat. And thus the Comics Code Authority relented, and all these creature types were allowed into comics. 
Side note, it would take the male nipple another decade to appear in comics. <laughs> Side note on nipples. I think artists did try to thumb their nose at the nipple convention of the Comics Code Authority by often drawing nipple outlines in, in, and showing them through women's shirts or costumes. Of course, most of the Comics Code Authority adjudicators of the 60s and 70s were probably males, so these got through for maybe obvious reasons. I like to think these little artistic rebellions were a way artists of the time were giving a hearty, hypocrisy-criticizing middle finger to the stuffy, McCarthy-esque Comics Code Authority moderators. And so endeth the sidebar on nipples. It is in this new, less restricted era that Marvel launched books like Werewolf by Night, though that character actually originated in Marvel Spotlight in issue two, yet another anthology book, but one that doesn't sound quite so macabre. This relaxation of the Comics Code Authority restrictions on classic horror tales functioned as a kind of creative release for Marvel creators. Many classic literary monsters like Dracula, Frankenstein's monster for instance, had long since passed into public domain. Classic monsters had ready-made easy origins to deploy. With Frankenstein's monster or Dracula, there were whole casts of characters to import into Marvel Universe. And it is almost trivially easy, trivially easy, to create origins for vampires, zombies, and, of course, werewolves. So, audience, if you're curious and you want to write a Dracula story or a Sherlock Holmes story or uh, you want to toy with the Frankenstein's monster, all that is public domain. And you can write to your heart's content. Nobody will sue you or anything. You have those characters. You have every character from those books. So get out and write me some good monster content. All these changes within the comics code allowed Roy Thomas to resurrect as if from the dead. A story, uh, a five-page story he wrote for Marvel's predecessor company, Atlas Comics. The title of that comic? You guessed it, Werewolf by Night. Now, I couldn't find that original story. And to be honest, I, I didn't try very hard. But I did read the Marvel Spotlight number two, which was the first modern appearance in the Marvel Comics universe of Werewolf by Night. So this is post-Atlas Comics. I have no idea how much of Roy Thomas's original story survives in the 1972 iteration. Now, before I even got into the first, this, this issue of Marvel Spotlight, I have to say I was filled with an almost horrific sense of envy because I looked at the price tag on this comic book from 1972, a year before I was born. That price tag was 25 cents. When I started collecting, you could get a comic book for 80 cents. Now, it's $3.50 to $5 sometimes for an issue of comics, even electronic versions of comics. So uh, yeah, I'm pretty pretty sad about the the way comic book costs is, uh, has increased. Now, a lot of that has to do with materials and stuff like that, but still, 25 cents is a, is a pretty pretty reasonable thing to be envious of. Now, this introduction to Werewolf by Night in Marvel Spotlight number two was kind of fascinating to me at almost every level of the production of this comic book. The cover is almost a throwback to Universal Monster movies. And page one introduces us to our werewolf lurking in the streets of L.A. I mean, there's no, there's no pause, there's no preamble. We get right to some kind of action. We get some text narration, text box narration, which is from the confused mind of the monster. Its thoughts are disjointed, confused, longing for the forest, but confined to this smelly, polluted city of L.A., 
the werewolf just wants to get to the woods. The werewolf is spotted by a mugger. It's shadowy, it's misty. I don't know if this really happens in LA in the 1970s. Maybe it did, it was a lot smoggier back then. But the mugger sees this kind of stumbly, confused being in the in the alley and he thinks he's got an easy target. But he doesn't. He confronts the werewolf who confronts him a little better and kills him. And this is all in, in four panels. Four panels when we get our first major action beat uh, of werewolf carnage. It's not too bloody. It's not. It's not anything bad. You won't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't be scandalized in any in any era, seventies or now. But this is really fast paced, typical Marvel style storytelling. There's a lot of economy. It works. It doesn't feel shallow. It feels very. Let's get into this story. This is a short story. We got to get moving. And I thought that despite the kind of hokey narration, this was a pretty thrilling way to open our story on our werewolf. It's either in that fourth panel where we get the dead mugger or the and the I mean the werewolf standing triumphantly over the mugger that he's just killed, uh, that we get our title card in the in the comic and we learned that Jerry Conway scripted the book but that the script was based on a story conceived and plotted by Roy and his wife Jeannie Thomas. Michael Plug was the penciler and may have done double duty by doing his own inks and he might have done his own color so Plug did a lot of work on this book. John Costa did the letters. Plug, uh, Mike Plug, by the way, I hope I'm saying that right, Mike, if you're still with us, was a Marvel mainstay of Marvel's macabre section of the Marvel Universe. He did Man-Thing, he did a lot of Dracula. He was all over this weird uh, niche in Marvel, in Marvel dumb, Marvel dumb, Marvel dumb, Marvel Universe, the Marvel, you, you get what I'm saying. So there's a lot of people working to bring the story to life. And after, after of course, Werewolf by Night kills the mugger, uh, a cop shows up to clean up, I guess. He shoots the werewolf, but werewolves don't really get... It's hard. To, you can't kill werewolves without silver. So our werewolf gets away. Next panel, we meet Jack Russell, who's waking up having felt like he's had a bad dream of running around in the woods. He's getting on his shirt. He's wondering about this dream. He notices a cut on his arm, on his upper bicep, where he might have been... Where the, where the werewolf got hurt. Mmm, kind of strange, kind of strange. What to make of this? The, something else neat that happens here is as he's putting on his shirt and he's getting ready to go about his day, he starts thinking about how... He just had his 18th birthday, and one of the things that uh, that Jack Russell worries about is his now his status, his eligibility for the Vietnam War, and I thought that was an interesting concern. Uh, of course, been 72 from from mid 60s to to 75. Uh, a lot of young men were being drafted to go to Vietnam, and that would have been a thing that readers of comics at the time would have been thinking about. I know my parents. It's interesting. My parents worried about me being drafted when I was born. They were like, oh my God. They were worried that the Vietnam War might still be going on when I turned 18. I was born in 73. Didn't have to go to Vietnam though because that ended somewhat disastrously in 1975. Before I go on, I kind of want to talk about Jerry Conway as well as Michael Plug, who I already mentioned. Conway was also part of that macabre Marvel backbone at the Marvel Universe. Of Mar he, was, he, he was crucial in penciling a lot of the great Marvel horror comics of the day. And their sensibilities and Plug's ability to add creepiness to almost every panel is really helpful in pulling off what Roy Thomas was trying to do. Roy admitted in that essay I mentioned earlier that his book was intended to be a little corny and hokey in the way of those old Universal films. So it's a, it was a, it was an attempt to do retro. It goes without saying that the thumbprint of Universal was all over the Marvel comics of the 1970s, the Marvel horror comics of the 1970s. Werewolf by Night is no exception. He is clearly an homage to the Wolfman from the late 30s, early 40s, I think. Uh, so much so that it, it 
cribs a line from that movie and pretends that it's an old folk poem. And that line, you guys may remember because we did cover the Wolfman on this very show, was, Even a man who is pure of heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the moon is full and bright. Credited, as I said, as an old folk poem, which I don't think it was anything of the kind unless old folks wrote The Wolfman. So I, I kind of want to defend Thomas's decision here. Because, yeah, when you watch those old shows, they can seem a little hokey, a little corny. But I think that there's still an element of creepiness and decent horror, even though the effects are dated in The Wolfman and in Frankenstein. I think they still work pretty well. So I think Roy, Roy, Roy Thomas was onto something. Plug's werewolf certainly looks like, a lot like, the Lon Chaney Jr. werewolf, uh, the Wolfman, from the movie of the same name, The Wolfman. Though, I think Plug's werewolf is lean, kind of lithe. It, it looks like an athlete. It looks much more dangerous. It looks... Werewolf by Night, the werewolf of Werewolf by Night, is kind of scary looking, I think, even though it is clearly using that old universal design. I think the design elements overall work quite well, but it's the tone and characters that really make it obvious why fans clamor to get more of that Werewolf by Night that they saw in Marvel Spotlight. The book is almost a new genre. I, I think I kept thinking of the term in my head, and this may be a real thing already, and I didn't coin it or anything like that, but I, I kept thinking of the term L.A. Gothic when I was reading this issue of Marvel Spotlight. So after our initial intro to the werewolf as a beast, we, we learned pretty quickly that the werewolf is a, is a guy named Jack Russell, which that name, audience, by the way, was a joke by Roy Thomas. He thought it was very humorous that his werewolf was named after what he thought was kind of a unthreatening breed of dog. Now, Roy must not have known or cared about or had been, he was not raised by small mammals. Jack Russell Terriers are, are actually kind of terrifying to small mammals. They are vicious killers of small mammals. So if a squirrel was watching this, or reading this book rather, they, they would certainly have seen it appropriate that the werewolf was named uh, Jack Russell. So we met Jack Russell. We, we already know that he's a werewolf who experiences his lycanthropic escapades as vivid dreams. He's kind of starting to question his sanity, but overall, we come to realize he's a pretty happy guy. He's born into wealth. He has a very loving sister named uh, Lysa, L-I-S-S-A. They get along great. He's got a mom that he really loves and who really loves both he and his sister. But then enter his stepfather. And this is where I think we start to get into the L.A. Gothic elements of the story. His stepfather, while fairly nice, if cold, to Lysa and Jack, is obviously very abusive to his mother. And not only that, the limo driver that his stepfather has hired is also kind of abusive to the mother. Through a little backstory and dialogue, we get the sense that Jack and Lysa's mother has been hit by her dad, and she, we see within the, without flashback or without any subtlety, that the limo driver is yelling at her, and Grant, the stepfather, her husband, tells her that she's just going to have to deal with it and just deal with this limo driver's peculiarities. Jack and Lysa try to con convince their mom not to take it, not to let Grant hit her anymore, not to take any gruff from the limo driver. She doesn't have to. She's better than that. They even try to convince their mother to go to the police, but two, one, she doesn't want to. She says something like, he's not always bad. So 
we get a lot more uh, of werewolf stuff in the story, but one of the things that I just kept focusing on was sort of the sordid family drama that's going on. And it feels very, it almost feels Southern Gothic. That's what I, I was also thinking, you know, I was making these comparisons. But to continue on with this weird family drama, as as Jack is about to turn into a werewolf, he one one night he happens upon that abusive chauffeur I was talking about. The guy's tinkering on his mother's car. It seems, but Jack can't really focus on that. The werewolf's trying to come out. His subconscious is trying to get him to go to the woods so he doesn't hurt anybody, and and, and so he doesn't notice this. He does think it's odd, but he doesn't see the the looming tragedy. But what's neat about this is we do, we the reader, recognize something is rotten, if not in Denmark, in, in L.A. Jack awakens on a beach the next morning and is found by his stepfather, who, who first blasts him for being an irresponsible person. Three, two, one. But what Grant, the stepfather, does not do is tell Jack about some horrible news, uh, about a horrible event that's happened over the course of the night. Grant doesn't inform Jack about this terrible news until Jack gets back home and sees his sister Lysa head in hand, crying, bawling, carrying on like you would. What's going on? Jack reasonably asks. And it's only then, after a beach walk of being blasted by his stepfather, that Grant, the stepfather, says, well, your mother went out looking for you last night when you ran off. She was worried. But she had an accident. We don't know why. We don't know what happened to her. But we readers, we, we know. We know what happened to her. We know that the chauffeur did a little bit of unnecessary and deadly tinkering with her high-end sedan. He almost sarcastically does this. Oh, didn't you know your mother took the car out looking for you last night and was in a terrible accident? His stepfather kind of blames him for the mother's injury, which is pretty cheeky when we learn a little bit more about his involvement later. We get a little throwback to uh, Wolfman and maybe a little homage. Uh, the family doctor is at the house. He sees Jack is 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 feeling very bad, blaming himself. And the doctor, uh, in addition to being blamed by his stepfather, the doctor steps in. The doctor's a stand-up guy. No, no, let's not let's not be hard on the boy. The boy's just out. The boy's a young man. Not a big deal. Let me go talk to the boy. The doctor does a little counseling, does a little 70s sedative prescription, prescribing. And Jack is sacked out almost till evening. And, of course, he wakes up in a tizzy. Oh my God, I've been asleep all day. I need to go see my mom. I, why am I laying here asleep all day? My, I, my, my mom's in the hospital. What am I doing? He, again, spiraling into that, I'm a bad person uh, vibe. So he rushes to the hospital. But as he's getting ready to go, he, oh, I'm sorry, as he's, as he's falling asleep when he's first prescribed the sedative, he does hear a strange phone call over uh, by, by his, fa with his father, Grant, and an unknown caller. Grant says, yeah, I'll see you tonight. Where do you want to meet? I'll have your money. All right? Uh, this is what he says exactly. All right, I'll meet you. South Street? The warehouse? Yes, yes, yes. I'll have the money blasted. Pretty incriminating. But it sounds bad. It sounds bad. If you listen to a lot of cr true crime podcasts, watch a lot of true crime shows, it all sounds pretty hinky. But as I said, Jack falls asleep, doesn't do anything about it, wakes up, rushes to the hospital. The doctors say, hey, your mom's in critical condition. You cannot go into the room and see her. But he sneaks in, crafty. Now, I'm sure you realize by now what Jack is only going to find out later. The stepfather has paid to have his mother bumped off. That is 
I think one of the elements that makes this kind of an LA Gothic, it's got this kind of flaw. It's, the, the, the show is peopled with flawed characters, often bad characters. But going further into this, we also get some more secrets. I think Gothic storytelling is often about secrets as much as it's about anything else. Jack gets into the room to see his mother. Hospital security is not good in the 70s. And she's covered with a sheet. He's, she immediately recognizes him. Oh, Jack, that's you. What's going on? And he's like, oh, mom, I'm sorry. And whatever, whatever. You, you guys can fill in the blanks. You know what they're going to say. But she says, oh, Jack, I'm really sorry. I have to tell you this way. Because I think he confesses to her that she, he feels like he's going a little crazy. But turns out, well, Jack never knew his real father. Jack is from Transylvania. She had originally married she tells him, uh, a duke of some kind. And that duke would sequester himself three days out of every month in a tower. And it was only when this, she never questioned it. She didn't want to think about it. He said he was just going into the tower to read and do his researches. But of course, that's not why he's in the tower. You guys know why he's in the tower. She probably knew why he was in the tower, but the, the poor fella escapes uh, accidentally. His, his little self-imposed prison breaks, breaks while he's in his werewolf form and he escapes. Tears through the countryside, gets shot by some people who have silver buckshot, as you do in Transylvania. Probably everybody has silver buckshot in Transylvania, just for these kinds of occasions. It's revealed that it's the Duke. Ah, shame, tragedy, yada, yada, yada. Mom moves to the States, meets Grant. But Mom comes with a lot of money. Mom is independently wealthy. And Grant probably knew this. Anyway, it's during this conversation where Jack gets his backstory that I, I really felt that there was this, this L.A. gothic, this gothic element to the, to the story. And I just found it really cool. I found it really fascinating. One thing you'll notice if you read this book, this, this, this Marvel Spotlight on, is that Mom seems really lucid, really, for a person who's at death's door, if you listen to these doctors talk. It's strange that she's so speaking so clearly. It's during this conversation that Jack has with his mother that Jack starts to put the conversation that he heard his stepfather having with the other clue of the chauffeur working on the car late at night that he realizes that his father probably had the chauffeur kill his mother. He voices this concern to his mom and his mom says, oh, Jack, whatever you do, don't hurt, don't hurt Grant. Please don't hurt Grant. I don't know why she's so intent on doing this, uh, protecting Grant at this moment, but Jack acquiesces to this. He, he promises his mom that he won't hurt Grant. And when he does this, her hand falls from the bed, from beneath the sheet. And he comes to realize, as we all sort of suspected, and I thought this was kind of creepy. I, I started to suspect, to, to suspect this earlier in the conversation, in this scene, that his mom's been dead for most of the conversation, if not all of the conversation. Jack loses his mind. Luckily, he doesn't have to think about this for very long because it is a full moon out. And uh, he's starting to turn into a werewolf. The end of the book is fairly thrilling. It goes a lot, as you might expect. As he's changing, he starts thinking about the address that he heard his stepfather say. And he knows L.A. pretty well, I guess, uh, whether he's a werewolf or whether he's uh, Jack Russell. And he makes his way to the, the, the South Street and the warehouse, whatever warehouse that might have been. And he confronts the chauffeur. The chauffeur's kind of buff. They have a they have a pretty good fight for a little bit until the chauffeur realizes uh, that the person he's fighting isn't in a costume at all. This is a real werewolf that he's fighting at, and he kind of freaks out and turns tail and run, maybe activating the prey response of this this werewolf, this Jack Russell werewolf, and he's run down pretty quickly and killed. Stepfather enters looking for the guy that he has got to pay off, and the stepfather says absolutely incriminating things. Ah. You'll be happy to know my wife's dead and I'm rich, chauffeur guy. And Jack Russell has to hold himself back 
and not kill his stepfather. It's a it's a chore. Later on in the morning when he's his self again, he'll sort of see some of the wisdom of this because maybe there's more going on and he wants to know more before he acts. And that's the intro to Werewolf by Night. I thought this was just such a stunning first issue. It wasn't really like anything else Marvel I had read. Uh, folks, Werewolf by Night was the first major comic book title I had to collect through hunting back issue boxes at comic book stores. When you're young and you're collecting, you don't generally have a lot of money. So you can get a few new books, some new monthlies. My, my collecting, I, I focused really hard on X-Men and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There were a couple other titles too, a lot of the X-Men books, the X-Men universe, the X-Men wing of the Marvel Universe. But I wanted to read other things. And I discovered Werewolf by Night, I discovered Shang-Chi, and I discovered another title which I'm not going to say because it is going to maybe spoil something for you. If you guys decide after listening to this that, man, I need to watch Werewolf by Night. So I don't want to spoil that. But back issues where you could get comics for 10 or almost at cover price, 25 cents an issue. They were beat up, they didn't have bags, they were old, they're not going to be worth anything. They were just books to read. And it was a really great way for a young comic book collector to, to build their collection and have other have other things to read. So I really have a soft spot in my heart for Werewolf by Night, so I was really happy to see Marvel had done something with this character that I loved a lot. Now, how much of this backstory is going to make it into the Werewolf by Night show? I don't know. We'll have to watch it and find out. But I think you can see from this that it was a really neat way to hook new readers. It's a really kind of fun book and different from all the superhero stuff that was going on in Marvel. And that's our first segment, guys. That's the background to Werewolf by Night. On to Paper Girls. to my capsule review of episode one of Paper Girls. As a capsule review, I'm only going to do a brief background. Paper Girls is Amazon's latest series adapted from a comic book. I never read the comic book Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughn and illustrated by Cliff Chang, though I definitely will pick it up now. Vaughn is a talented writer and Cliff Chang is one of my favorite comic book artists. Sidebar on Cliff Chang. I didn't know about Cliff Chang until I read he and Brian Azzarello's epic and amazing run on Wonder Woman. It is one of my favorite Wonder Woman storylines ever. Wonder Woman is one of my favorite DC characters. And they completely, well not completely, but they reimagined Wonder Woman in very unique ways. It was almost as if Wonder Woman was being channeled through the quirky imprint of DC called Vertigo. So it was like Wonder Woman meets Vertigo comics. And I just loved everything that they did. And I loved all of Cliff Chang's sensibilities on Wonder Woman. So, audience, if, you, if you're if you wanting or wondering what's a great place to start Wonder Woman, go find Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang's Wonder Woman. There's an omnibus. It contains their entire run, issues 0 to 35 plus 23.1 and Secret Origins number 6. And I tell you what, you will thank me. I'll get letters. I'll get hundreds of letters from anybody. I'll get effusive, praising letters if you go do this. And and read the book. You'll be you'll 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 thank me. You'll say, man, Max, Wonder Woman can really be really really cool. I'm not gonna let Wonder Woman 1984 discourage me from trying out Wonder Woman content. Thanks, Max. You're the best. And so into my sidebar on Cliff Chang and sort of Wonder Woman. I didn't really know anything about the comic Paper Girls. I would see it 
in the comic shops, but the covers didn't really reveal that it was a sci-fi thriller drama type thingy. The covers, at least as I remember them, made it look more like a slice of life drama or maybe dramedy. It looked more my so-called life and not enough my so-called life with time travel with, with time travel craziness. So anyway, I missed the boat and was surprised to see Paper Girls look like it would be exactly my cup of tea or coffee, depending on the time of day. As the trailer demonstrates, the show is about four Paper Girls who get pulled into a science fiction time travel adventure mess nightmare. Paper Girls, or Paper Boys, are, I think, largely a profession consigned to history. Younger listeners may actually have seen print newspapers, but most news organizations have moved their print uh, papers, their print news, into the cloudy ether of the internet. But, constant listener, there was a time when news services employed probably hundreds of thousands of child workers to get to get up at 4.30 in the morning every day, every day of the week, to deliver everyone's news right to their doorstep. I had a good friend who, before he was even in high school, had one of the largest paper routes in my hometown. And, and I'll return to that in a little bit. I, I, I was really caused, I was really given a lot of cause to think about the whole phenomena of paper boys and paper girls doing this work. Anyway, more about that in a bit. The show was adapted by uh, Stephanie Folsom, and I'm sure an army of writers and producers and probably a lot of consultation with uh, Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chiang. Now, before we go any further, I just want to stress that this is a capsule review. I'm not going to talk about anything I might have learned about the, the show's story arc, what happens later on in the show. I haven't really watched much of it, but I have learned a little bit since I've done this research. But I don't want to really get into any of that. Um, I want to basically focus on what my impression of the show is from this first episode and give you, listeners, an idea of what I think and whether it's something I'm going to return to and maybe some, maybe give you an idea of whether it's something you should check out if you haven't already checked it out. So that's, that's the purpose of the capsule review. Now, the show is directed by probably an army of, of directors, but it looks like we're going to focus a little bit on these directors. They're going to get some pretty serious recognition, which doesn't always happen with serial, serialized shows. But in 64-point font, the producers thought we really needed to know that the show was directed by Georgie Banks hyphen Davies. And I'll, I'll offer a little critique, uh, critique about GBD later on in the show. The show stars Cameron Jones as Tiffany Kilkin, Riley Leigh Nellett as Aaron Tiang, Sophia Rosinski as Matt Coyle, Fina Straza as K.J. Brandman, Ali Wong, Aaron, as adult Aaron, though she's billed initially in this episode as woman, and Sakai Abney as adult Tiffany, which we don't meet in the first episode. And that's the main cast from IMDb, where it scores an impressive 7.3 out of 10. It's kind of surprising, which, and I'll get into that later on, too. So let's get into it. Paper Girls opens on an early morning in 1988 on Halloween Day? In Cleveland, Ohio, the young people of that long ago Cleveland, Ohio, call this night Hell Night, or this early morning hour Hell Night, or maybe the combination of late Halloween's Eve and Halloween Day is Hell Night. I don't know. But it's a night characterized by a lot of pranks, and the early morning hours are also characterized by, in addition to pranks that are often mean, a lot of bullying by the older teenagers who have access to cars of the paper delivery crowd. Wait, 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 that's not, that's not quite right. That's not quite how the show opens. The show actually opens on Allie Wong. She's just billed as woman in this episode. Uh, Allie, woman, Allie woman Wong, awakens to a dreaded bump in the night that can herald maybe just the house settling or can, or, or can herald home invasion. The first thing Allie does is she gets up and she 
picks up her phone and she calls her friend. Uh, her, her her call goes straight to the answering service of her friend, or the I guess it would be the answering service. I don't think people had, people didn't have cell phones back then. She leaves her room. She picks up some kind of impact weapon, I guess, or some kind of improvised impact weapon, and goes to the top of the stairs. And she threatens, "I'm calling the police to her potential home invaders." And <laughs> and audience, let me just offer a bit of advice to you, uh, unsolicited, I know, but but as a person, me. Who is who is trained and, and taught self defense most of my adult life? Uh, I just want to offer this little bit of advice, unsolicited, as I said, as you know. Don't ever do any of this. <laughs> if you hear a bump in the night that you think might be a a home invader, do the following. I want you to secure your room as best you can. Wow, you call the police. Retrieve your firearm from its secure, quick-access safe, or get your taser, your jumbo palm pepper spray, or your tomahawk bowie knife combo. You know, if you're kind of old school about your self-defense tools. You can call out and say, look, I've, I've got a weapon. I've called the cops. Take whatever you want. Take whatever you can get and get out of here because the cops are on the way. And stay in that barricaded place. Let the police clear your house when they get there. Obvious caveats apply if you got to go to get your kids or whatever, obviously. But if, you, if you're a single woman living in your home, that's what you should do. What I just said, do that. If you're a single man living in your own home, in an apartment, whatever it is, that's what you should do. You don't have to go anywhere. Stay secure. Stay safe. Okay. I was going to say sermon's over, but I also want to advise getting some noisy mean-sounding, at least mean-sounding dogs. Okay, sermon's really over now. On to the show. Alley Woman Wong goes downstairs. She's, she's, she's clearly hearing people in her house now. She turns on a light, and just as she's about to confront her her uh, home intruders, the show then cuts to that far, not, that far off hell night in 1988. And it's at this point that we meet our paper girls, prepping for their, their early morning of delivering papers. We also see our first drunken high school students harassing a paper truck, which is presumably driven by an adult. So it's pretty bold, these, these uh, pranksters. Every tree that we see in this, in this show, in this, in this segment, is covered in toilet paper. So the Hell Knight's really living up to the name. So we meet... Oh, sorry, sorry. So, so as I said, we meet our, our paper girls. The first person we meet is Erin. She is... Uh, we find that she's clearly doing this paper route against her very worried mother's wishes. Her mother clearly has trouble with English. She only speaks in Mandarin. I think that that's the language she uses. And her daughter can speak uh, both English and, and Mandarin. We, we see kind of the basic particulars of, of getting the papers. You'd get these, this big stack of paper. Erin uh, picks up the big stack of paper off her porch, uh, un, un, cuts through the, the twine that held it, and she begins rolling up the paper, putting rubber bands around it to make these little uh, rockets of, of newspaper. I've done a, I did a lot of this, not because I had a paper wrap, but my buddy, as I said, had a paper wrap. And we would, his friends, uh, me among them, would get up with him early in the morning on the weekends and, and try and help him out with the paper route a little bit. We'd at least hang out with him and talk and throw the paper at, at, at houses, which is always fun. But anyway, I, I, I recognize these little steps pretty well. I'm sure paper boys and paper girls everywhere recognize these steps pretty well. So so that's Aaron. We see her doing the basic 
mechanics of, of the pa- of, of paper delivery. Then we cut to Tiffany Kilkin. Uh, her intro demonstrates that she's probably a gifted student. We, we, we get the sense that she is sharp and gifted. She does some things that, that clue us into her smartness. Uh, we, then we go to Mac Coyle, who is the working class kid. She, we, we, we immediately see that her home life isn't the greatest. We meet her sibling, we, we meet her cribbing cigarettes from her mom, who's like sacked out, probably passed out on the couch. Her brother, we meet her brother who comes in and yells at her, threatens to beat her up over his missing uh, Walkman. Now her Walkman is, uh, uh, the Walkman is, a, the Sony Walkman is a, is a device that used to play cassettes. I don't know if anybody knows what that is, but uh, it'll be an interesting Google rabbit hole for you to go down if you've never heard of the Sony Walkman. Probably you have, probably you have them. He thinks she's taken it again. We get the sense that she has taken it before. He threatens to beat her up over the Walkman, or actually threatens to kill her if she finds out that she's taken his Walkman again. And he storms off. She she kind of smiles when she knows he's out of the way and she of course puts the headphones of the Walkman on her head because she has she has of course taken the Walkman and, and then there's KJ Brandman uh, she's a Jewish American girl whose family owns several businesses in the suburbs and around the area of Cleveland where they live which is called Stony Stream I guess it's maybe some kind of neighborhood in Cleveland I don't know if it's a real neighborhood in Cleveland but so that's our four characters they're going about their business they're getting their paper routes ready and we see them all get on their bikes to begin their morning it's an early morning Aaron this is her first paper route. We kind of got that sense. She gets into trouble on her route uh, really quickly, but she accidentally delivers a paper to a house that's not listed as a subscriber. And as she goes to retrieve the, her paper, she is confronted by the homeowner who's wielding a bat and wearing little more than his boxer shorts. He accuses her of stealing, which she says she's not. Then he rails about the he said he, he rails about the quote unquote Japs who have stolen all the jobs in Cleveland, and she points out that she's not Japanese, that she's Chinese. Which doesn't really help the confrontation de-escalate. But not that she is on, not that the onus is on her to de-escalate the confrontation, obviously, right? This is a crazy-ass racist yelling at her. But she's not backing down. So we're kind of seeing some steel from Aaron. And she says, I'm Chinese. And one, you're, I'm Chinese. And two, you aren't a subscriber. And the guy is, looks like he might be about to do something really bad. Like hit her with the bat or threaten to hit her. At least threaten to hit her. That's pretty bad. He's already kind of intimated that he might. It's at that point that Tiffany comes storming in and she's like, oh, wait, 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 Here, here's your paper, sir. She, she's new. She didn't really, uh, she didn't know. Here's your paper. And Tiff, uh, Aaron, Aaron's not ready to back down and she's not ready to apologize. But Tiffany ushers her away and she's like, new girl, you're going to get in trouble. And Aaron doesn't see why she should have to apologize. She's not in the wrong. And thus, the paper girls of the title begin to come together. You know, and I don't really want to discuss the nuts and bolts of the show or the, this episode specifically. Much more than that, what I will say, and this is trailer content, so I'm not spoiling anything, is that the, the quartet will become pretty fast friends. They will quarrel with a, with a group of bullies that Mac knows pretty well. They'll prevail over these bullies. And then later on, they'll they'll think that they're about, they're getting bullied again. And they go to confront this new group of bullies who's stolen one of the walkie-talkies that Tiffany brought. What they're going to find out is that that group of bullies really isn't a group of bullies, but rather a, a faction in a pretty violent conflict. While they're going about their adventure at night, one of the things I thought was kind of neat was the way the, the lighting effects so, subtly change over the course of the episode. We, the viewer, are kind of noticing these things more than the characters are because I think that the the, char- the, the character of these strange occurrences like 
it sounds like a storm's happening or sounds of a storm may be coming, a peculiar light in the horizon. It all happens piecemeal, so you don't notice it. You might not notice it until all of these phenomena begin to aggregate and you're confronted with this kind of changed environment. So so we, we kind of watch the, the, the paper girls experience, the kind of change in their environment. They start to notice that they're not seeing anybody anymore, just this group of bullies that, they, that they're trying to confront. And so... Anyway, the girls realize that they're, they've kind of wandered in, in, into the middle of a conflict. And at first they're worried that there might be a nuclear war happening. And then their minds start to go to other crazier things because just nothing is tracking for them. Everything seems so much different than is their normal experience. Both of the groups that they, they now encounter in this strange, constant twilight, Cleveland, have high-tech weapons. They're very dangerous. And the conflicts that the girls see are really violent. You don't have to be gifted Tiffany to know that they need to be as far away from a war zone, even a small one, as they can possibly get. So they all abscond to Aaron's place, which is nearby. And of course, as you probably predicted, even if you haven't seen the trailer, that the people who Ali Woman Wong heard intruding into her house are these kids. And of course, the big reveal, which you also see in the trailer, is that Aaron and Ali Wong are the same person. Woman is actually Aaron as an adult. And that's pretty much episode one. I don't know if I've actually sold it that well to you, but I don't really want to reveal too much. Maybe you haven't seen it. I've, I've recently learned that the show's been canceled, so maybe a lot of people didn't watch it, despite the high IMDb rating. So my motivation for not telling you too much about the film, uh, the, the episode one, is that I don't really want to ruin anything for you. There's some really neat and harrowing things that happen in the show, and I don't, I don't want to mess that up for you, viewer by listener, by telling you too much about the episode. What I have said is revealed in the trailer, so I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything for you. And I, I kind of, I, I do kind of want you to to see the show and have a lot of the experiences for the first time, like I did, before you, you know, so, so you can make your own judgment. And before I get into my general impressions of the show, whether it was well directed, whether the hook was good, any of that stuff, I kind of want to marvel at, with you, listener, about the whole phenomena of paper boys and paper girls in general. I mean, I remember my friend having some weird issues every once in a while with some of his clients, but I, I sort of think it's strange that anyone ever thought it was a good idea to send an army of children out at 4.30 in the morning without any kind of supervision at all to deliver papers on bikes. I mean, like, I'm curious as to how many kids got injured or kidnapped or were victims of crime because of this practice. I mean, I know recently we've sort of uh, wisely stopped the practice of sending Girl Scouts to strangers' doors to sell cookies because there was a kind of a clear danger there. So I just thought it was really strange that, yeah, that we sent kids out to do this. So anyway, on to my impressions of the show. Amazon clearly thinks or thought that this was going to appeal to the Stranger Things crowd and really capitalize on that nostalgia that seems to be in the zeitgeist right now for the 80s. There's no crime in capitalizing on a trend like that, but it is a delicate thing to do. One of the things that really helps Stranger Things, I think, is that, at least in the first season, which is what I've watched, the cinematography, uh, the quality of the film is all really good. I mean, it sort of feels like each episode is a movie that you might have seen in the 1980s. It is a really good 80s science fiction spooky thriller, Stranger Things. The production values of Stranger Things are all quite high. It didn't lean on the sounds, which is to say the music of the 80s, to generate the 80s feel. The soundtrack actually reminds me a lot of a John Carpenter soundtrack, so it creates its own sound, but a sound that is very enigmatic of the 80s. Now, Paper Girls is a bit hit and miss in this regard. At times, Paper Girls actually looks like a, a, a much lower budget 80s TV show, and maybe it was aiming for that, but it sort of felt like maybe they were up against 
budget or time constraints. Sometimes the film quality looks very much high end and sometimes it looks like just good TV. I'm not saying that any of that necessarily detracts from the show, but if you're trying to capitalize on that Stranger Things audience, uh, that that desire for 80s style content, I wonder if maybe they didn't miss an opportunity or shoot themselves in the foot in some way by not really aiming higher with their production values. And as I said, it's hit or miss in regard to those qualities. Because at other times, it actually does feel like the, the cinematography is much higher end, like the film quality is higher end, like I am watching an 80s show. And since there's this sort of multiple identities <laughs> involved here, I mean, it looks like that anyway, like, like one director was doing this and maybe one director was doing that, but we only have one director for this episode. So I have to lay some responsibility for this sort of mixed presentation of the content where sometimes it looks like just TV cameras were working and then other times it looks like, you know, you're watching uh, Stranger Things in terms of the quality of the film being used. So so that makes me wonder if 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 there weren't budgetary constraints or time constraints that, that caused them to cut corners in some scenes that they were filming. That unevenness didn't really detract from the show from me, but because I watch these shows sometimes more critically than I might if I was just sitting down for myself to watch a show, I noticed that uneven quality. Like Stranger Things, Paper Girls does homage the 80s sci-fi spooky thriller genre. It does this in both subtle and obvious ways. It will be it will be hard to miss the influence of Steven Spielberg while watching the this episode. There are some scenes and lighting effects that are like right out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. None of this is a problem. I think it works as homage and and never seems lazy. Paper Girls is an incredible is incredibly well cast. The Paper Girls look and act like kids. The actors are maybe a little older than the characters they play, but they are. They are close. They're they're close to the right age, and and the kids do a great job of navigating in a believable way some very harrowing scenes. So I, I got the sense that they were that, that they were these young kids, and that they were reacting in genuine, believable ways to the things that they experience in the in in this episode. So so I never felt like I sometimes do with films that I had to make allowances for the child stars. Like with Star Wars: The Phantom Menace, the kid who plays Anakin is a really young kid, and he's you know he's terrible as an actor, but. I sort of, when I see a movie like that, I just sort of give that kid a pass. The kid's not a good actor. He's six. What are you going to do? Young kid, that's fine. So you have to make allowances. Not every not every kid actor is a Jodie Foster, Kristen Stewart, but who else? You, you insert your you, you insert your favorite kid actor, Dakota Fanning, maybe. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was a, was kind of a kid prodigy. So not every kid can do that. So I make allowances. I didn't feel like I had to make any allowances for the kids in this show. They all do fine. They all do fine in episode one. They're great out of the gate. Now, it could maybe be argued that Paper Girls leans too heavily into the soundtrack of the 80s. There are a lot of classic 80s tunes, and I I, I don't feel like that's that argument wouldn't fly with me. I thought they picked great songs for each segment of the of the show, and 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 for me, it, the soundtrack works. I think it's a really good soundtrack. I think it's a good mix of some obscure 80s songs with some very popular, well-known songs. So. That argument just wouldn't fly with me. I think it's fine. I think it does a great job of establishing time and place. So it's fine with me. Good job on the soundtrack, guys. So the verdict. Did Paper Girls do enough to hook me? I think it did. I'm going to watch the rest of the show and, and hope uh, Jeff Bezos changes his mind about the cancellation. And if he doesn't, I'll at least be able to complete the Paper Girls saga in comic book form. So give the show a try, folks. And that's the capsule review of episode one of Paper Girls. <laughs> Thank you.
And now, I will respond to Alan Moore's stupidity. I could do this all day. I could do this all day. All right. So let's do this unpleasant thing. In an interview with The Guardian, and in I guess a book of short stories, Alan Moore is the latest high profile or, you know, maybe semi-high profile person to put superhero movies on blast. I'm kind of tempted to just say fuck Alan Moore and move on, but he's, like I said, kind of a semi-important person. He's a person who's been in the comic book industry, which I'll get into in a minute. But he's, he's you know, he's a big personality. And he, he recently said in an interview with The Guardian, and uh, also through some of his short stories, his most recent short stories, that he thought that adults going to see comic book movies was a bad thing. He thought that it augured terrible things for the future of humanity. He's, he goes on to blame uh, the rise of global fascism a bit on people watching comic book movies. Or at least he's correlating people watching comic book movies with, with the rise of fascism in the globe. And I, so, so, but because he's an important person and he said these things, and he's, he's, he's a recent person to, a recent important person to blast superhero movies. I mean, Martin Scorsese says he did it a little while back. I think even Steven Spielberg's complained about them a little bit. I kind of want to push back against a lot of these complaints, but I want to push back against Alan Moore's specifically because I think his his profile in the comic book industry might make people take him more seriously than maybe they take folks like Martin Scorsese and and Steven Spielberg who sort of come off come off crying over come off sounding like they're jealous of the success of superhero movies. And Alan Moore's critique sort of on the surface feels more sophisticated. I don't think it is, but because of who he is, there's going to be people who think, oh, there might be something to what Alan Moore is saying here. He says that superhero movies uh, are infantilizing of adults who go and see them. He thinks that it's a situation where people are kind of pining for a better time. It, so he associates this with that whole MAGA, make America great again, or I guess make Brazil great again. I mean, autocrat or would-be autocrats and fascists uh, are not unique to America right now. And, but I don't know that comic book movies are necessarily, you know, the widespread influence that, that Moore seems to think they are. I want to explain this royal status of Alan Moore in comics. Not everybody who listens may know this about Alan Moore, but he is, or at least he was, a fine comic book writer. He, ha he has, in fact, written two of my favorite pieces of comic art of all time. Watchmen, which we haven't reviewed on this show, uh, and the first two volumes of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> We haven't reviewed either film adaptation of those works on this show. It, it may be useful to do that at some point in the future. One, I'll say this, though. I'll say this, though. One of those adaptations is very good, and one of them is not. And uh, I'm going to let you guys go find out which one's which. Alan Moore cut his teeth very early in comic books, like a lot of comic book writers do, writing, you know, standard superhero stuff. He's written probably everybody at DC Comics, every major hero that, that there is there. DC Comics is, uh, for listeners who don't know, DC Comics is the comic house that publishes Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, The Flash, Justice League, Justice Society, Green Lantern, Black Adam, Shazam, and so on. After doing a little work there, he ended up pinning a pretty amazing piece of Swamp Thing writing. He had an epic run, which is to say he had a bunch of issues that sort of, uh, of continuous storytelling on that book, Swamp Thing, that changed that character forever and made it its own thing, uh, really distinct from Marvel's Swamp Monster, Man-Thing. And I'll tell a story about Man-Thing and Swamp Thing at some other point. It doesn't really matter here. But for a time, Alan Moore was really a really great comic book writer. He also did, for Vertigo Comics, I think it was, a really popularly, uh, a really well-received graphic novel called V 
for Vendetta. I think it might have been a series of issues before it became a graphic novel, but I'm sure many of you have seen that movie as well. Alan Moore hated that movie. In fact, Alan Moore's hated every adaptation of his work to the big screen and probably hates a lot of the comics, too, that he wrote because uh, he hates a lot of things. But I'm not a big fan of V for Vendetta, but I think it's worth your time. Uh, <laughs> though it is likely responsible for the dread ubiquity of the Guy Fox mask and why Alan Moore hated the movie adaptation, uh, I think it's a good movie. Uh, the film V for Vendetta is actually pretty good. So Alan Moore's done a lot of great comic book writing and was. I don't think he still is uh, a great comic book writer. But the, the, I've got that introduction out of the way. So let's address the claim that superhero movies are a reason for the rise of Donald Trump. He sort of blames trends in, in fascism and, and certainly the rise of Donald Trump on superhero movies, which he thinks are facile and juvenile. And, and, and he uses this word over and over again in the interview with The Guardian, infantilizing of adults. And I don't... I, I, if there is a more egregiously wrong explanation for the phenomena of the rise of global fascism and the election of Donald Trump, you would you would the only place you could find such a dumb statement or a dumber statement is in the Twitter feed of Kevin Sorbo, or as I call him, Worst Hercules. I mean, I think that's where you'd have to go to get a dumber take on current trends in politics. And this is tremendously disappointing. I used to think Alan Moore's main gift in writing comics was was in putting a critical eye to our heroes and to bringing the nuance of the eras in which they were created to the creations themselves. He added layers of potential cynicism as well as as human weakness to people that are called superheroes in other books. He gave them deep problems and and he wondered about the people who don these outfits, who become superheroes. He he asked what kind of people would would do superheroing if they could what would they re what are the motivations for somebody who has these kinds of powers or who's invented these amazing technologies his characters often had less integrity than our hero than 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 than, than heroes are usually depicted as having in comic books in watchmen he stripped away the generally idealized world of comics his heroes actively interacted with the conflict in vietnam some of these heroes are are doing their best they're trying to be good heroes Others are sort of fascists themselves, and others are just kind of going along with the whole process. So that was the first time he sort of deconstructed the hero. The second time he did it, and this was also very interesting, was in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And he did all those things where he questioned the integrity of these heroes. Uh, he kind of talks a lot about the cultures in which these heroes arise. Uh, Captain Nemo, Sherlock Holmes, Moriarty. Uh, these are the kind of characters I'm thinking of and that he was writing about. Mina Harker from the Dracula series. And he does that same treatment where he sort of shows, he, he comments on colonialism. It's it's all very good stuff. And he kicks over those apple carts uh, of those characters. He, he wonders aloud if maybe they weren't as... if if you could interpret them in a less noble way. And in fact, he turns Nemo, who's a villain in in that series, the 80,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I probably got that wrong. Uh, but Nemo's a bad guy. He's a, he's a bit of an eco-terrorist. In Alan Moore's book, he is an Indian man, very much opposed to the way the British are treating the subcontinent of, of India. It's a, it's, a it's a nice inversion of expectation. But this literary conceit of inverting our expectations of our heroes is basically his one-trick pony. He's mastered it, but it's gotten tired. That's all he's done really since. He just kicks over everybody's apple carts. Oh, you like that? Boom. You like that? He kicks it over. Uh, as I've read more Alan Moore over the years, and the more I listen to him talk in interviews and stuff, I sort of get the sense that he's just an 
edge lord who had a little had had a little no no not a little a lot of talent and made it big. But he he strikes me often as that guy who comes over and hates everything that everybody likes. If it's popular, he dislikes it. He he's the kind of person I think I think who would go out of his way to crap on something that you like. And I think that's Alan Moore to a T. For those of you who don't know what an edgelord is, here's the Oxford language dictionary. Edgelord, informal, noun, a person who affects a provocative or extreme persona, especially online, typically used of a man. Edgelords act like contrarians in the hope that everyone will admire them as rebels, end quote. I think that, I think that probably describes Alan Moore pretty well. Now, just because I suspect him of being an edgelord his entire life, that doesn't necessarily mean that his hypothesis about superhero movies is wrong. I think it is, and I'll get into why, but but I don't want to just let my attack on his character to necessarily substitute for a response to his hypothesis that superhero movies are infantilizing and they are a cause for the election of, say, Donald Trump, which is, I think, one of his uh, kind of claims. And so, so we need to address that hypothesis. And so let me get into that. Is Moore articulating a serious point? I mean, is he really making an argument or is he just trying to be provocative? I don't know. I hope he isn't because blaming superhero comics or uh, superhero movies for Trump with any kind of serious, with any, in any serious way, just doesn't make sense. It's, it's maybe one of the dumbest things I've ever, I've ever heard. I think a smart person like Moore can certainly adduce a string of specious points to make their case, but I don't think his case stands up to much scrutiny. So, you know, maybe, maybe he does believe what he's saying and maybe he is being sincere. I would be disappointed if he was, but, you know, a smart person can come up with patterns and see different things and string them together and, and think they've crafted a chain of evidence that justifies their point. And, and maybe, maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe. But I think we would have to look at the movies themselves for evidence of what he claims they're doing to society. And I don't think that if you look at the movies, that you see them reinforcing any of the attitudes that he's worried about in modern culture. Even the most basic adventure genre of these films, the most basic adventure style of these films, where they don't really delve into anything very serious, I, you still don't see any kind of attitudes or behaviors or values that animate a person like Donald Trump or his supporters, or justify or bolster the arguments of would-be autocrats or fascists like Bolsonaro or uh, er Erdogan of Turkey. You don't see any of the values of our heroes in those people or in the movements that support them. So I, I just don't know where Alan Moore is getting this idea that the superhero movie is acting as a window to a simpler, better time. A lot of these superhero movies are actually kind of complex morally. And they often grapple with interesting questions. Now, it's absolutely true that these movies certainly do sometimes reinforce values, attitudes, behaviors that we as a society certainly do kind of like. But it's not necessarily those those values that, that we see in leaders like Donald Trump or Xi Jinping or any of those. Uh, insert your autocrat, right? The, the values that we see are, are inclusive. They value honor. They value not, not shallow honor, not honor culture, but like honor as in integrity. They value helping another person out. They value diversity. Everything in these films sort of argues against the kind of shallow fascist otherizing that we see in a person like Donald Trump. 
And so I, I just don't know, I don't know how Moore is making the leap from people enjoying superhero movies are somehow responsible for fascist trends. And so, as I said, a lot of these modern films, yes, they do reinforce good values, I think, friendship. And I said it all earlier. But they also have a lot of moral greatness. They ask a lot of more interesting moral questions. We just thought a little bit about Iron Man, but that's not the only one that does this. I mean, a lot of them do it. I consider Captain America Winter Soldier, which sort of focuses on the idea of preemption. It's sort of a, a critique of the idea of preemption. Or Civil War, which contemplates a lot of the problems of non-state actors, state actors engaging in helping around the world that sometimes uses violence. I mean, it's I think it, I think when you think about Civil War, it's a, it's kind of a complex, a, a morally interesting movie. Uh, Captain Marvel. I, I think that that also offers a, a bunch of interesting moral questions about war, about who's good, who's right, who's not. I think that f for anybody who wants to engage with these movies in a deep way, they can. For anybody who just wants to have a good white hat, black hat experience at the movies, you can have that too. These films work a, a lot like Westerns in many ways. There's a lot for a lot of different people to enjoy about them. The Western didn't herald the end of democracies, and I, I don't think that superhero movies are bound to do that either. And none of these pieces suggest ever that terrorism is, eh, you know, maybe that's okay. Which, if you read Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, that's a message you can get out of that book. And, you know, I I, I don't know what Alan Moore's position on, on violence as a political tool is, but I do know that he's thinking about starting up a podcast on anarchy. Of course, I'm not blaming Alan Moore, Alan Moore's V for Vendetta for terrorism. That would be sort of stupid. Absolutely, art can be propagandistic. It can serve a nationalist interest. It can serve uh, as really powerful propaganda. I mean, we've got exam examples of this all throughout history. I don't think that that is what comic book movies or comic books are doing. Sometimes, yes, they are entirely aspirational. They are, you know, projecting ideals that, that, that maybe the authors want people to try and live up to. Sometimes the moral questions are pared way down for the sake of getting a story across. Sure, that's fine. But to blame comic art for the rise in global fascism and specifically for the election of Donald Trump, it just doesn't make any sense. And it sort of flies in the face of any understanding of, specifically in the case of Trump, any understanding of American politics. Almost all of the explanation for Donald Trump has its roots in at least the last 50 years or so of the American, uh, 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 the last 50 years of American right-wing politics. And there were trends in American intellectual life that made the those behaviors of, of the right wing over the last 50 years possible. A great deal of the road to Trump was paved by the coarsening of American politics by the right by, by right wing talk radio. The hosts rejected, by and large, facts about the world and instead offered whatever take uh, whatever takes on reality far right political ideology demanded. Regulation was always evil. So was climate change. So climate change. So so climate change had to be a hoax or false. The hole in the ozone layer was fake. Government intervention was always a negative. So programs to help the poor or alleviate legacy of racism or to address climate change or to do anything were bad and demonized. Conservative talk radio really pushed that pull yourself up by your own bootstraps ideology, even though a lot of the hosts, like Rush Limbaugh, certainly were on the public dole once or twice in their life. So 
so that's one leg of the rise to Trump, or, or one one effort of paving the road to Trump. Pick your metaphor here. The coarsening of politics by right wing media. It's it's the beginning, and that happened about you know fifty years ago, almost fifty years ago, I think, close to it. So so now right wing radio is is sort of training its listeners to ignore facts about the world. It's starting to break that common reality sharing that we all do, where there's a lot of facts we can all agree on. It used to be a lot of facts we would all agree on, but with right wing talk radio, it's beginning to train a certain cadre of, of people on the right to ignore experts that say things that they that they don't like to hear. The road to Trump was given a lot more pavement with the Gingrich revolution, which eventually led to the politics of getting nothing done that we enjoy, benefit from, <laughs> to this very day. Gingrich authored a strategy booklet to his fellow Republicans that basically always said go negative early. It always, it, it advised to always demonize the opponent, never concede a point that they might make that might be good. The Gingrich playbook basically made necessary and useful compromise impossible. Compromise is always important in politics. Representatives need to understand that because the country, you know, it, it's not just about your constituents. It's, it's, you've got to meet other people in the middle or, you know, somewhere close to the middle. Sometimes one side's going to get a little bit more. Sometimes the other side's not going to get, sometimes the other side's going to get a little bit more. That's fine. Politics is about compromise because especially in a big country like this, uh, the U.S., it's, it's, it's a diverse populace with a lot of different needs. But that all became, it started to become more and more impossible after the Gingrich Revolution. Add to this the phenomena of gerrymandering, which created districts in which it became harder and harder for sensible evidence and reality-based GOP candidates to be competitive, and it made voting for a dim in those districts impossible because a lot of the people in those districts, artificial districts, were, were hearing dims be demonized on talk radio, and later those falsehoods on talk radio would make it to Fox News and then even other to other news organizations. So a core of the conservative movement was becoming a lower and lower uh, a lower and lower information demographic while at the same time having their ego stroked on their preferred channels and on the on their talk radio stations as possessors of the truth the truth about how people should live the uh, that the world was fine and that and that every changing thing in the world was what was actually wrong and that it was their it was never their attitudes or their policies that could could cause an issue and then and I want to go back to this idea about gerrymandering and what i mean by uh, artificial districts is is that these our states are, are in some in some of our states the districts are so carved up so that you only have you know fairly conservatives uh, fairly conservative people in a certain district and I'm not saying that Democrats don't do this too they do it but just not to the same extent it doesn't seem so it becomes harder and harder to have a person who is in the middle like right of center get elected in these districts and it's impossible for somebody who's a Democrat to come in because all of these people in these districts which are you know designed with kind of criminal precision these people in the districts are mostly conservative and all they hear are how bad Democrats are how they're doing whatever evil thing that is they're doing. So you can't even have a moderate Democrat come into one of these districts, even when people are deeply dissatisfied with their representatives. You can't even have somebody come in and get elected because they're they're Democrats, so they're obviously evil. And then add to this mix the twin recognition by the GOP leadership and fundamentalist Christian leadership that each could exploit the other for political power and ever more roadway for Trump gets laid. Once this happened, many in the GOP started framing their disagreements with their political opponents, not as disagreements over ideas or over policy where things like useful compromise can be achieved. No, now political battles are uh, religious battles. So this creates a rather 
new and fairly hateful political dialectic with God and the GOP on one side and the Democrats and Satan on the other. In such an atmosphere, it became harder and harder for GOP politicians to justify policy compromise to constituents in districts so gerrymandered as to, to concentrate an extreme fringe of the GOP. For members of such districts, to compromise with a Democrat is to make a compromise with Satan himself. It is hard to get anything useful done in this kind of environment. Add to this a couple hundred years or more of telling people it is absolutely okay to believe things for bad reasons and on poor evidence, or none, and you can see a little bit why a Trump could happen at this particular fraught moment in our history. And everything I've just said is is, is kind of a, it's a pretty potted history. It's, it's not in-depth. It's a complex history. But that begins, and it only just begins to explain how a Trump gets elected. There's a lot more to be said, just not on this podcast, I don't think. But let me just sum up a little bit while I have you here, Alan. The values expressed by word and action in these so-called simple superhero movies are in direct opposition to Trump and Trumpism. Trumpism otherizes, is exclusionary, imagines a real America with quote-unquote real Americans, i.e. rural white men for the most part, and white women who think they should be at home versus unreal Americans, quote-unquote. Many modern GOP leaders have embraced racist dog whistles to convey their otherizing and exclusion. Modern, simple, black-and-white, black-and-white hat narratives that Moore thinks are, is so down on and thinks are infantilizing flatly reject all this otherizing. Comic book movies tear down the idea of otherizing. The heroes, hell, sometimes even the villains of these movies reject re- reject every single facet of Trumpism. So, so it's hard to take Alan Moore's claim seriously. Indeed, that's the claim that seems juvenile and utterly facile. But maybe simple and facile, juvenile and not very complex are what you what, what you have to expect from a professional edge lord. And maybe there was never much more there to Alan Moore than professional edge lord. All right, folks. Sorry to end on such a downer, but I, I really felt it important to respond to more specious nonsense so so but, but but before i let you go completely let me just say that there's nothing wrong i don't think with classical conservatism there's nothing wrong with questioning whether a government program is the right answer to some problem there's nothing wrong with questioning tax rates or wanting lower tax rates for americans historically i think there's been a lot of benefit to the contrary push pull of progressive progressivism and classical conservatism my purpose here wasn't to bash the conservative political tradition but to explain how trumpism came about as I said, my explanation is potted and segmented and incomplete to be sure. But that was the purpose, not to bash conservatism. All right, that's the show, folks. Next week, no politics, I promise. Jason and I are going to talk all things deliverance, directed by the, I think, fairly underrated John Borman. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. It helps us find them. If you have any questions or suggestions for films you think we should watch, or you want to offer some feedback, if you want to tell me I'm crazy, tell me I'm wrong, tell me... I'm the better host, or say those things about Jason. I don't know. You can reach us at lordmovies39 at gmail.com. You guys never do, but I wish you would. You can chat at me directly on Twitter at The Supper Test. You can check out our Instagram page, which is Max and Jason Watch a Movie. Just type that into the search bar and we will pop up. Anyway, we want your feedback. Please do try and reach out and get in touch with us. And I think that's all the news that's fit to print from Lord Movie Studio in the Great North. Bye-bye. I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. He was walking through the streets of Soho in the rain. He was looking for a place called Li Ho Fuchs for to get a big dish of beef chow mein.
three, two, one.